I still believe in our system. I still believe in democracy. I still believe we're the best country on the planet. And we have enough people here in Congress and more importantly, enough people around the country who still want to fix this and believe we have to fix it. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is my good friend, Pat Ryan, an Army combat vet. I wore the uh, the Navy shirt for you today, Pat, who now represents New York's 18th district. I've brought him back on the show to discuss an incredibly important resolution he's introducing to the House floor, as well as the chaotic state of the Republican Party. Pat, welcome back. Thanks, Ken. Good to see you. Beat Navy, has to say it, and then we can, we can move past it. Um, All right. We have to let's get serious because we have to start with with what's going on amongst your colleagues on the other side of the aisle. It's days like this. I'm glad I am not in your shoes. But give us a view from the trenches on what is happening inside the Republicans chaotic attempts to elect a speaker. Yeah, I mean, if we zoom out and I think you you and, and other folks have been doing a good job of highlighting this. We learned this day one when we're military leaders, when in charge, take charge, right? And so, like it or not, the American people elected a slight Republican majority. They're in charge of the House. But from day one, it has just been chaos, division, dysfunction, now literal, literal death threats from one Republicans to another's family. I mean, I was talking to colleagues uh, who I won't name who said they've been, they've been dealing with that the last week. So it's really brought out the worst in their party and, and the worst in themselves right at the moment where we desperately need to have some unity, to have a path forward, to be supporting Ukraine, supporting what's going on in Israel, supporting uh, efforts to deter Chinese aggression. So uh, on a personal level, I just finished my first year, and uh, I knew it would be divided down here, but I, I, I did not think we were headed into this. And so what I've been focused on, what I think my Democratic colleagues have been focused on is staying unified as not only Democrats, but I think at this point, patriots really, who want to just move the country through this, get going in a forward direction. I'm hopeful that we may have one more week of total now I think there's nine candidates now in this next iteration of who's the most extreme far-right candidate they can get. But once that fails, which I think it will, I hope that they'll listen and, and come approach us with some kind of coalition government to move us forward. Well, as of this recording, you're right, there are nine entrants into this contest from the Republican Party, everyone more extreme than than the next. It's not a good look, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned in passing, which is the Republicans' very slight majority. It is really worth mentioning that Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats, had exactly the same slight majority and were able to get a whole lot done. When the Republicans point to this very slim margin that they have as an excuse, it doesn't hold water. Yeah, and I, I uh, came down here in a special election at the end of the last Congress. So I had three months of a very different view of how the House can function, in my view, how it should function, where in just a few months, I was able to vote to, to pass a budget, which is the, one of the most important things we can do, which we failed to do under the Republicans uh, in charge. 
But we also passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, the single biggest infrastructure investment since Eisenhower. And and we're actually seeing that in my district. I represent uh, about an hour and a half, two hours north of New York City. We're seeing improvements to roads and bridges. We're seeing broadband. We're seeing sewer and water pipes that used to be made of wood. <laughs> Literally, some of my cities have wooden pipes and we're replacing those. We're removing lead pipes that are making young kids sick. So we're doing good work from that. We passed the CHIPS Act, which across the country is bringing back manufacturing jobs and uh, semiconductors, quantum computing, and chips, including in my district, a $20 billion commitment from IBM to bring jobs back to our region in upstate New York, the Inflation Reduction Act. The list can go on and on. And it's not just about these sort of bills or acronyms or accomplishments backwards looking. To me, what it says is it sets a forward direction. Democrats want to bring the country forward. They want to lift folks in the middle class and working class up bring uh, jobs back here that are good paying to our communities, particularly rural communities like mine and and a lot of others across the country. Whereas the Republicans, I mean, at best, uh, they're treading water, but really taking us backwards, in my opinion, in terms of removing rights and freedoms, but also just economically. I mean, we are now 26 days, I believe it is, from another government shutdown, and they, they can't even choose a speaker. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. We are a long way from Washington here in Northeast Ohio. You're a long way from Washington up there in in New York's 18th. And I often hear, mostly from media types, that Congress is dysfunctional. I'd like you to address that because my perspective, which I I often find myself uh, arguing against my neighbors on this, is that Congress isn't dysfunctional. I mean, you look at how much the Democratic Party is able to achieve. It is a single party that has taken this path, this anti-democratic path of burn it all down, that is the sole source of the dysfunction in Washington. And, and it's not fair to say our system writ large is broken. One party has decided to break it. I think you're right. And if you need, again, to your previous point, if you need any more evidence, the, the split screen contrast of the 117th Congress, last uh, one, where we, we did all those things I just talked about, and 118th, which has just been total gridlock at best. At worst, they've advanced really dangerous policies to uh, make climate change worse, to put more uh, deadly guns on our streets. Every single bill they've had, they've essentially tried to add in a nationwide abortion ban, regardless of what it actually had to do with, including the defense bill, which to me is sacrosanct above um, uh, many others in a lot of dimensions. So uh, you're right. And when you put forward Jim Jordan as your leader, a, a an avowed public, unabashed election denier, and in my view, insurrectionist, enab- insurrection enabler, when you put forth Jim Jordan, who led the bill on a nationwide abortion ban, who multiple times has voted to weaken, privatize, and sunset Social Security and Medicare, who, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And by the way, who hasn't passed a single bill in 16 years in the House of Representatives? When you put him forward, how can you be taken seriously at your word that you want to govern, that you want to be bipartisan? Meanwhile, we have extended, and I've been involved in many of these conversations, a hand for some kind of even short-term coalition uh, government that would be inherently bipartisan given the slim majority of, of five seats that they have. 
And just last week, you saw, you know, Elise Stefanik in particular, who's my neighbor further north in New York, say, I will not do any deal with any Democrats in any way. I mean, that's just not how <laughs> this is intended or designed to work. Right. That's not the Democratic contract at all. Do the American people, by and large, get it? That That's what worries me most. When Jim Jordan was first nominated, we know him well here in Ohio. I welcome that because I thought it would expose the the hypocrisy and the nihilism, frankly, the nihilism of today's Republican Party. Are your constituents beginning to see just how unable to govern and anti-democratic the Republicans are? I think beginning to, but it requires helping people understand what is happening because there's so, you know, as you can appreciate, there's just so much going on in folks' lives. And I, I do think, unfortunately, trust in Congress over decades has been, if you can look at the polling and the data and the numbers, you can just talk to folks, you know, in your community. Trust in Congress has been declining because we have failed at, in multiple ways over the decades, most of my lifetime, to meet the moment on, on a bunch of fronts, on, on big thing, big problems in the country that need to be addressed, gun violence, immigration, climate change, a more fair economy, all those issues, um, rather than solving them, there, there's been a lot of infighting. And I, and I think it is difficult within that context to characterize what is really unprecedented, even in, in the long history of uh, challenging and polarizing times. This is unprecedented. I mean, vacating the speakership never happened in almost 250 years, not being able to choose another leader. And we're now 20 days in, completely unprecedented. And, and they've really devolved. I mean, I have two and four-year-old boys. Like, they are, the Republican Party right now is fighting uh, worse than my, my two young boys, who we can at least say, hey, guys, calm down. Let's, let's get it together here. So we have more work to do. Uh, myself and a, another fellow veteran, Chris Deluzio, Naval Academy grad from Pennsylvania, we wrote an op-ed trying to highlight this, trying to say, look, this is a moment where we have to rise above this the chaos, which has really been bred by the far right kind of MAGA ideology that's taken hold of the party that Jim Jordan represents, that obviously Trump not only represents, but has, has uh, really brought to the fore. So our call has been stop acting as partisans and start acting as patriots. And that's something we're just going to have to continue to call people to, to do to, to transcend the moment that we're in. At the same time, you have Republicans in front of cameras saying that this chaos is the fault of Democrats. Let's play this short clip, and then I'd love your reaction. But, but Speaker McCarthy w was elected, and he was the Speaker of the House. He was the largest Republican fundraiser ever uh, for us as House Republicans. I mean, the Democrats knew what they were doing when they put up 208 votes to take him out of, out of the speakership, and that's what created... Uh, the current situation that we're in. So then we they had a conference meeting. They, they they didn't take him out of the speakership. I mean, you you guys sure are the majority. But, but, but you guys you guys are the majority, right? Ninety six percent of the votes came from Democrats, though, Brianna. I mean, I mean, just factually speaking, there were only eight Republicans, and there were two hundred eight Democrats. I mean, two hundred eight Democrats. But sir, who's voted. in the majority? Uh, well, the Democrats were the majority of that vote, and when we no, have a very who's small in the margin, majority in the House of Representatives? 
the Republicans are in the majority, but the Democrats provided the majority of the votes to take Kevin McCarthy out of the speakership. In fact, they but provided 96% of the votes. Republicans provided the key votes. They're in the majority. They can provide enough votes, obviously, to put a Republican speaker Brianna, uh, in the place. The Democrats provided 96% of the votes. 208 Democrats voted to remove the Republican Speaker of the House. Eight Republicans voted to remove the Republican Speaker of the House. So 96% of the votes came from Democrats to remove the Republican Speaker of the House. I, I will they say, I find it... the largest it, fundraiser that we've ever some, had. They knew what they were It's some doing. interesting, it's some interesting verbal gymnastics. I will give you that. Um, but I want to talk about the future here. What do you mean gymnastics? Um, I'm just talking about the facts. 208 Democrats voted. There were the vast majority of the vote to take Kevin McCarthy out of the speakership. Well, I'm talking about how it works. And that is that the I majority in the House of Representatives, your party, is responsible for electing the Speaker. So, Pat, what do you make of that? I mean, it is some clever, I guess, verbal jujitsu trying to say that, you know, because the Democrats are aligned and not helping out the Republicans, it, it's their fault. But from the trenches, what's uh, what's the take uh, of, of you and your colleagues? Well, I mean, it's just straight up lying and deception, unfortunately, when Rather than taking responsibility, as I said, when in charge, take charge. Rather than taking responsibility that the Republicans are in charge um, and they've failed in every aspect, they, they pass blame and uh, cast blame. And, you know, one of the differences that both makes me proud to be a Democrat but sometimes frustrated is we don't lie. And so when I see colleagues out there blatantly misleading, uh, and I'm surrounded by Republican members in my district, so in my local media, for example, though these excuses and, and lies about democratic responsibility are being blamed and I have to answer them. And, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, I do that different ways. But at the end of the day, um, I do think folks, when you take the time to say, look, the way this works is when you're the party in charge, you have to choose a leader just like you do in your your business or your organization. They're like, oh yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And, and then sometimes when I remind folks, you know, when, when Nancy Pelosi was our speaker, would you have expected any Republicans to help, you know, support her or, or, you know, sort of keep her in power. And, and they're like, oh, you know, yeah, actually. <laughs> so some of this too is just Congress, the rules of Congress aren't always intuitive. And so it's just kind of helping remind people of that. That narrative that the Republicans or some Republicans are pushing that there is culpability on the Democratic side is getting a lot of pushback. But I'm surprised more people aren't turning the tables like you described doing and and making the point that Republicans wouldn't have dared vote for Nancy Pelosi or bring it to the present if only a handful of Republicans voted for Hakeem Jeffries, we'd be out of this mess. I mean, the hypocrisy is really obvious when you point it out by, by turning the tables that way. And uh, right out of the gate, I was one of the few and, and more have been doing it that did that, that said, look, we just need five chaotic Republicans to come forward. And I have to say, nothing I think frustrated <laughs> those sort of Biden district, quote unquote, moderate, although I don't think they are moderate anymore, Republicans more than when I said that, because then they had to answer that question. Yeah, why? Hakeem keeps getting more votes than anybody else. Why isn't he? Why isn't he the speaker at this point? He seems to be the only one who actually can lead a coalition. And, and the Democratic coalition, let's be clear, is, you know, it's a big, broad coalition. We don't all agree on everything by any means. But we agree on core principles. We agree, most of all, in small d democracy, that we don't want 
election deniers running our, our House that with the 2024 election coming up the way it is and the possibility of Trump, uh, the likelihood of Trump as the candidate, imagine a certification vote with Jim Jordan in any anywhere near leadership circles or some of these other election deniers. That's a very, I mean, we can't, we cannot say enough how dangerous that is, how close to the precipice we are, if that is uh, where the Republican Party is right now. Yeah, and, and just a reminder, a certification vote is is normally a pro forma exercise to say, yeah, the people have voted. This is the president. We saw that it can be turned on its head on January 6, 2021. And if a certification vote is controlled by an insurrectionist conspiracy theorist, who knows how that goes next time? I think if it were Jim Jordan, we know how it would go and democracy would be thrown out the window. I want to talk about those Biden districts with Republican reps that you referenced, because it gets to the incentive structure in the Republican Party with the primary voters the way they are. It is really hard to see them able to actually represent their districts. You know what I'm getting at. The right thing to do would be to to side with the Dems on issues of national security, on issues of small d democracy. But what seems to be motivating them more than anything is surviving a Republican primary. Can you validate that for me? Yeah, and that's certainly the lack of backbone, the spinelessness, the really just caving to the worst forces, the the MAGA extremist far-right forces in the party. That's probably when people ask me, how has it been down there? What, What are your takeaways? The, the level of sort of running scare that you see from Republicans who otherwise, I think, you know, we wouldn't agree on some of the public policy things, but we'd agree on small d democracy, as you said. The level of running scared is much greater than I thought. And it's very dangerous, especially in the moment that we're in. I've had multiple uh, Republican colleagues who are from those districts or, or in districts that are, you know, still fairly purple, maybe tinting red, validate that it is that fear of a far-right primary opponent powered by the same forces that Jim Jordan mobilized to bring death threats to Republicans if they didn't vote for him for speaker. It's that really divisive kind of energy that would come to the fore, powered by Trump. And so that is what folks are afraid of right now. And it's incentive structure-wise, led to further and further right, more and more extreme, including many of those members voting against, for example, in the defense bill, which prior to coming to the House floor was pretty bipartisan, didn't have all the culture war sort of issues in it. They were added in, including blocking reproductive health care and abortion care for all active duty women service members, 20% of our force and you know, added into the farm bill, added into all these normally routine, critical for the functioning of our country bills, they've added these culture war sort of poison pill litmus tests. And every single Republican, except in maybe one or two in a few cases, is voting for them. Have you heard of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These old, worn-out cells no longer serve a useful function for our health, wasting our energy and nutritional resources. These zombie cells tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age, 
leading to the aches, slow workout recoveries, and sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle age feeling. Our sponsor, Neurohacker, packs seven of the most science-backed senolytic ingredients into one formula called Qualio Senolytic, and you can take it just two days a month for fast, noticeable benefits and for a much better aging process. Senolytic ingredients are science-backed to support our body's natural elimination of zombie cells. My body and energy levels feel about 15 years younger after just a couple months of adding Qualia Senolytic to my diet. I love how easy it is to take. Having more physical and mental energy for my family and friends is such a win in how I show up for those I love. My productivity has doubled. I feel invigorated and enthusiastic again with a daily drive and enthusiasm to get things done. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. It's also backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, so you have almost three months to try Qualia Senolytic at no financial risk and decide for yourself. If you're in your late 20s or older, adding Qualia Senolytic to your diet can play a crucial role in combating negative aging symptoms. Go to neurohacker.com slash boats for up to 50% off Qualia Senolytic. And as a listener of Burn the Boats, use code BOATS at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash boats to try Qualia Senolytic with code BOATS and start aging on your terms. Did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable, which is why I'm excited about our new sponsor, Beam Dream, and their healthy hot cocoa for sleep. And today, our listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter, better sleep has never tasted better. Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, and melatonin to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. A recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water and milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year and get up to 50% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash boats and use code CYBER at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash boats and use code CYBER for up to 50% off. Can you talk about the the psychology of that? Not the politics, but what motivates someone to hold on that tightly to a job that between you and I isn't that great every day, right? What drives people to give up so much in terms of integrity and honor to hold on to this job? Because you and I both know people who have gone the other way and almost to a person, I'm not going to call anyone out, they seem happier for it. The Republican reps who stood up, who said, no, I'm not going to cave to this fringe element within my base. I'm going to do the right thing. They lost their jobs, but they hold their heads high. Yeah. And and this is where 
I, I keep deliberately pushing this language of patriotism. To me, I, I keep going back. Well, I'll, I'll answer your immediate question, but I want to tie it to a broader sort of imperative. I, I don't understand the psychology. I, I truly don't. I, I just think it's moral cowardice, really. Uh, there's no other explanation because if you're just a thoughtful person who's studied any history and followed what's happened in our country and how other dangerous moments like this, it's clear we're in one of those moments, right? And so if you don't um, do the right thing, you, you may have some short-term wins politically, but the long arc of history and, and, and history looking back at those folks, for example, who voted not to certify the election, over half of the Republicans in Congress at the time, they will and should be judged incredibly harshly. And, and they will never be able to remove the stain, in my opinion, of that specific vote. There's this letter that at the time, I think he was a, maybe not even a general, he was a rising military officer, Ulysses S. Grant, wrote to his dad and his sister in 1861. And it essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially said, whatever you used to think about our politics, I have a new way of looking at it. At this point, we have a flag and we have a constitution and we must uphold them. And there are two parties. There are patriots and there are traitors. And I, for one, will be on the side of the patriots who I believe will win the day. It, his is much more eloquent than my, <laughs> my clumsy paraphrasing there. But we are very close, if not at a moment like that, where if you've now failed to certify an election, you've voted multiple times for a known insurrectionist to be the Speaker of the House, you've endorsed Donald Trump, you're trending if very dangerously close to, and that is a word I don't use lightly, but that to me is behavior that isn't for the good of the country, and we have to be clear-eyed about that. You referenced earlier the threats that members have received for, in one case, voting against uh, Jim Jordan. I want to play a short voicemail that just is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the threats these members are receiving. Several of those lawmaker, lawmakers who oppose Jim Jordan's bid for speaker are now receiving credible and terrifying death threats. Over the weekend, it was made clear that supporters of Jordan's were going to launch a pressure campaign that apparently had Jordan's blessing until last night. And in the intervening time, well, it got pretty ugly. And we have some exclusive audio right now of a threatening message that was left as a voicemail for the wife of one of the Republican lawmakers who opposes Jordan. This has only been edited to take out identifying information of the wife and the lawmaker. We've bleeped out some of the language, but not all of it. And I want to warn you, this is pretty ugly stuff. Take a listen. Why is your husband such a pig? Why would he get on TV and make an asshole of himself? Because he's a deep state prick? because he doesn't represent the people. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to come follow you all over the place. We're going to be up your ass nonstop. We are now Antifa. We're going to do what the left does because your of a husband gets on TV. Just, oh, the bad guys, they did. So I'm going to vote for Kevin McCarthy, a piece of shit who everybody knows. And, for his piece of shit ass to talk about Americans who are actually fighting for Americans as the bad people does everything about him. So f you, f your husband, and we are gonna, we, we're not like the left, we aren't violent, but we're gonna follow your ass 
every appointment you have, everything you fucking do. Your your husband's an asshole. You should fucking talk to his stupid ass. We're at war. Israelis being killed, and your dumb husband is acting like a fucking two year old. No wonder he's a fucking warmongering piece of shit. So listen, you're going to keep getting calls and emails. I'm putting all your information over the internet now, everybody else's, and you will not be left alone because your husband, Jim Jordan, or more conservative, or you're going to be molested like you can't ever imagine. And again, nonviolently, you won't go to the beauty parlor. And you must be a bitch to marry an ugly motherfucker like that. So, Pat, a couple questions. A year or two ago, when I was working on a, a piece about this, I had a member of Congress tell me, you know, please don't highlight the fact that we're receiving these kinds of threats because we don't want to energize those who are, are sending them. I think that that approach has, has shifted because the American people need to see just how radicalized the right-wing fringe has become, uh, how dangerous it has become to, to speak the truth within that party. What are you seeing from within Congress? Yeah, I would have, I agree with your sentiment that any thought that this will go away, that this is an aberration, that somehow keeping it quiet will tamp it down is obviously and tragically not the case. And, and uh, you know, these threats against my colleague Don Bacon and others who I won't name out of respect for the conversations we've had, who've really been affected by it. And, and uh, you know, not, not coincidentally, actually, many of the 20 to 25 folks who voted against Jim Jordan are people who I know on the other side through uh, caucuses uh, that that bring together military service veterans and other national security veterans, who I do think are at least relatively better at zooming out and understanding the broader moment that we're in. So we have to be clear-eyed about this. We have to, as as hard as it is for folks to grapple with and and hear, it's so important that the broader American people hear this and know the really dark and divisive forces and that are swirling here and that there are consequences when these threats are brought out. Another thing we have to be clear-eyed about, and I'm probably going to get in a, in a little bit of trouble for this, but one of the hallmarks of fascist movements throughout history is the violent internal policing that precedes the larger takeover. When you look at the brown shirts, when you look at fascist movements in Italy, their initial number one enemies were their internal dissenters. And I think that's important in making the link between what is happening within the Republican Party today and understanding how fascist movements arise and evolve and then gain power. And that internal policing is really remarkable because it seems like the greatest enemy to the Republican Party these days isn't you with ideas that are in some cases, you know, diametrically opposed, but it's their internal dissenters. It's that in, internal thought and behavior policing that has become the hallmark of this party. And, and I was I was thinking about this. You're always uh, much more eloquent than I can. 
uh, I was thinking about this the other night where I, I was actually thinking about a few of the my Republican colleagues who had received these threats in the last few weeks and and wondering, I mean, certainly relieved, but I've never received those threats, thank God. Um, and, and I don't know many Democratic colleagues have other who have on this topic anyway. And you're exactly right. They're focused on the few remaining, and it's very few, folks in the Republican Party that have any backbone that are willing to speak truth to the rising sort of power that's coming to the fore. I mean, when, when General Milley left and Trump made those comments, essentially threatening his life, and, it, and, and that's just another escalation in multiple years now of targeted specific threats by Trump, and, as well as evoking others and invoking others to do the same against our senior most military officer who, who dared to speak up about the politicization of our military and, and other issues that were happening under Trump. You think about that alone as an example of exactly what you're talking about, what that does to every other military officer of any rank and, and, and soldier, sailor, airman, marine, and now guardian. I have to always remember to add that one. So this is, um, I don't know how we <laughs> put this back in the bottle. I, I really don't. Other than that, at, at this moment, we just have to call it out, fight against it and hold the line. Yeah, I don't know how we get back to normal either. Uh, there is certainly a new normal. Let's let's focus on something practical, though, because we can. You have a piece of legislation that's either on the floor, going to the floor, compelling or <laughs> at least putting pressure on Tuberville to stop his holds on military promotions. There are other senior leaders who we don't have in place around the world at this moment of maximum danger and tension, especially in the Middle East. Give us the the quick primer on that legislation, and then I want to ask uh, some some specifics. Well, this is really, obviously, much of this these holds that are tremendously dangerous and detrimental to our national security, particularly vis-a-vis the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza, and the lack of Senate-confirmed leaders in CENTCOM, in Fifth Fleet, in, in a bunch of critical operational and strategic command positions, given that urgency, and given the fact that so far in the House, there's been really no, there's been no one raising this as an issue that, you know, although the process happens in the Senate, certainly I believe it's incumbent at this point, it's reached such a, such a point of, of risk that the House should be saying, every House member, in my opinion, should be saying, this is ludicrous. We should absolutely have these Senate confirmations move through, particularly given another dangerous uh, conflict now in the Middle East. And so I honestly, I had slim, but I did have some hope that we could try to get a few Republicans at least to start as co-sponsors of this, but impossible. And that's another sign of how far just off the path the the Republican Party, especially in the House, has become that I couldn't get one single co-sponsor of what to every person I've talked to in my district and across the country is just common sense uh, legislation. And it called for just the the confirmation of uh, these senior military officers really is sort of like, as you said, a, a way to show the House has this view to put pressure on the Senate, particularly Senate Republicans, to unblock these blocks. 
every person I've talked to in the military, and I still have immediate family members in the military, Republican or Democrat has said this kind of grandstanding by Senator Tuberville is is insane. It's harming the country. It's harming the morale of those in uniform. What does it mean when you have two carrier battle groups approaching a war zone, one of them already in a war zone, and we have yet to confirm a chief of naval operations? There are so many implications to this. There's some immediate, and there are some, I think, in some ways, even more dangerous medium and long-term consequences. In the immediate term, just think about the complexity of that command, <laughs> as well as uh, the, the, the deputy commander of CENTCOM, the um, commander of Fifth Fleet that oversees those uh, carrier strike groups and, and, and many other positions. The complexity of that command, at best, the folks that now uh, are in those seats are having to do two jobs because essentially they're still holding their previous one. They've been nominated for the next one, but they haven't been confirmed. The other person's probably, in many cases, has moved on. So you're now trying to manage in the middle of a very complex uh, hot war in, in Israel and Gaza, in the Middle East, manage all of that among doing your, your, your prior job. The other thing that you think about the message that that sends to those sailors and Marines on those ships, we are sending you into one of the most dangerous scenarios that any sort of planner could think up, could draw up. And we're not even sending you with a commander who we've vetted and, and, and said, look, this is a Senate-confirmed commander and leader as you go into harm's way. That just, from, the, from a morale perspective, I think is, is really troubling and problematic. The other medium and long-term consequences I think that are important I hear my Republican colleagues on the Armed Services Committee constantly railing on and, and, and talking about recruiting. Almost all of our services, except for the Marines, have been falling far short of recruiting goals. And yet they do things like this, which undoubtedly, dramatically, in my opinion, reduce the incentives and the, the desire for folks to go into the military at a moment like this, where it feels like the military is increasingly politicized and under attack. And why would you want to both put your life in, 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 at risk and then get beat up for it by politicians, many of whom, and Tuberville in particular, who've never worn the uniform? It's just outrageous. So that was a long answer to your question, but there's so many pieces here. And the fact that this is still where it is, is, as you said, to everybody who's worn the uniform and is wearing it, so, so maddening. And, and the fact that this guy goes by coach on his website. I mean, like send him back to wherever he came from. He certainly is unfit to be in the United States Senate. Yeah. At the same time, he's describing himself as the most military person there is. Uh, I've done it before, but it's it's too good not to do again. Let's roll the clip of uh, Senator, I believe it's uh, Kelly, calling him out for <laughs> for describing himself with no service history at all as the most military person there is. Roll the clip. Important to point out and comment on what Senator Tupperville just said. I think the quote was, there's nobody more military than me. Nobody more military up here than me, but... Uh, uh, as far as I could tell, there's at least four of us, maybe more, that served in the United States military, in some cases for decades, and at least three combat veterans. 
So I take great exception to what Senator Tupperville had to say. And I've heard him say it before. And it just doesn't make any sense. So the other, the other less tangible damage is just U.S. credibility and the optics of this. And I can't think of a better literal example of that than the photo of the wall inside the Pentagon with the frames that are supposed to show all of the service chiefs uh, and the CJCS, and so many of them are empty. I mean, what must our adversaries in Iran and Russia and China think when they see this photo, which is supposedly a depiction of the leadership of the, the greatest military power in the history of the world, and there are just empty spots. That is, is just so damaging. Yeah, and uh, the, 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 the last thing we can afford to do right now is allow our internal division and dysfunction to even further embolden our adversaries who are, I'd imagine, probably vocally cheering and celebrating this kind of this kind of thing in from Beijing, you know, to every to Tehran, to every, every uh, foreign capital around the world that that cheers and uh, against America. So it's really hard to watch. It's really hard to watch. I'm sure for you and for a lot of your listeners that love this country, believe in this country, certainly believe in and support our, our folks in, in military uniform willing to risk it all. And we just owe them more than this. At the end of the day, when you remove all the politics, you think about the, the young man or woman raising their hand to take that oath of enlistment. This is not what they had in mind. This is, this is beneath the dignity of uh, that really solemn oath that they're taking. And uh, the fact that can't skip over the, the fact that there have been no Republicans really in either the House or the Senate at this point that have directly applied any pressure or called out Tupperville. In fact, most of them that I've seen sort of like joke about it or they minimize it. And they all own this at this point. There have been many opportunities to show some, some spine on this one. Yeah. Technical question. Does your resolution address the one person holds on ambassadorships or is it just the military positions? I focus because I'm on armed services committee specifically on the military positions. But of course, yeah, we know the broader paralysis. And and in a situation like this, arguably the diplomatic seats and um, those other seats are are equally, if not more important when, when it comes to the complex negotiations regionally and locally. So right now we have those one person holds limiting our ability to send ambassadors to Egypt, Lebanon, Israel, that seems kind of important. Well, I think this is one of those things where for a long time it probably was okay and 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 it was just sort of the norms and the dignity with which people approach this were allowed government to still function and maybe slowed things down a little bit, but it but it worked. When our democratic institutions stop working, whether that's the Senate on confirmations, the Senate on other critical legislation, the Supreme Court passing down decision after decision after decision over the last few years, that's wildly out of step with the American people. We have to be open to some set of thoughtful but meaningful reforms and changes. You know, the the Senate filibuster is another example of a longstanding rule and precedent that was designed to make the Senate more deliberative, more thoughtful, more balanced, theoretically more bipartisan, but it's just done the exact opposite. So 
you hear a lot of people tied some almost like in, instinctively to, well, this is how we've always done it. But if it used to work and it's now not working, I don't really care how you used to do it. If it's, if it's not getting done what we need in a moment like this with our domestic challenges, with our global challenges, we have to be open to reforming that. I mean, look, even the way we're choosing a House speaker doesn't seem to be working anymore. Hakeem Jeffries has gotten a plurality of the vote after vote after vote to tie it back to our previous thread. I just thought there was a funny tweet this morning. One of my uh, Republican neighbors, colleagues, uh, and this shows you how unserious they are about this, put up a post saying, here's the nine candidates. Let me know what you think on Twitter. And you look at the replies, about two thirds of the replies say, vote for Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, So, you know, at a certain point, this isn't working. And um, we've got to open a discussion about the broader functionality of the Congress. We have talked a, a lot in the last 45 minutes about this moment of intense peril we face as a country in terms of our, our democracy around the world, in terms of supporting our allies. I'm very nervous about all of this and, and how it may turn out. But one of the opportunities inherent in every moment of maximum danger is the chance for systemic change, is the chance to tackle those structural issues that have before now gone ignored because there really wasn't an opportunity for that kind of of deep systemic change. Do you think there might be a silver lining in all of this chaos and all of this drama? And the American people say, listen, we've got to change some rules. Even if it's something like getting rid of the one-person hold, I think we need to go well beyond that. But could something like that be in the cards? I hold out hope that it is because that's the whole the whole reason I'm here, despite all the frustrating, negative, and 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 concerning things we've been talking about is I still believe in our system. I still believe in democracy. I still believe we're the best country on the planet. And we have enough people here in Congress and more importantly, enough people around the country who still want to fix this, believe we have to fix it. So I do think there are opportunities to do that. One of the challenges that I felt as a, as a new member is it's really hard structurally in the current rules of all these bodies to bring forth ideas that would upset the current <laughs> balance, whether that's on campaign finance reform, because all of these senior members of Congress sort of raise money around very broken and corrupt system, whether it's these rules of how we choose leaders that sort of, in many cases, protect the longstanding leaders. So we need the newer generation of, of leaders, ideally in a bipartisan way, but certainly uh, in our Democratic Party, to speak up with a set of thoughtful reforms that certainly conversations I'm having with, with colleagues. And I think, again, the more we can frame these as, these aren't necessarily partisan. These are, how do we make the institution work again? Pew does a survey every year of trust in various institutions across the country. Trust in Congress, this was before the latest few months, is 9%. 9% of Americans trust Congress compared to, you know, say, uh, uh, healthcare workers, I think, are in the 80s or 90s, uh, nurses and, and so on. So we have to, and that's because it's not working. <laughs> so we have to put forth better ideas. Well, I, I hold out hope that we can find some way to turn this this moment of of chaos and 
dysfunction into into something good. Uh, and I'm glad that you are there in Washington helping at least doing your best to try to make that happen. Thank you so much, Pat, for joining us and keep up the good fight. Thanks, Ken. We're going to win it. Thanks again to Pat for joining me. To learn more about Pat, visit patryanforcongress.com. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.